0: There is something that is just naturally reality television about watching multiple vote counts tear asunder the dreams of this career Washington creature as he sits there with his neatly coiffed hair and his, <laughs> and his like very very well cut suits. Like to me, that was fantastic reality viewing. It's Monday, January 9th, which means it's
1: Media Monday. Today, John Kelly joins me to discuss how the press covered Kevin McCarthy's somewhat embarrassing struggle last week to become Speaker of the House. We'll ask if the coverage was a bright spot for CNN, why following the vote was so hard on Twitter, and why anyone would want the top job in the House. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Monday, everybody. I'm joined today by John Kelly. John, thank you for
0: filling in for me on Media Monday when I was gone. Appreciate it. Peter, I missed you. And I got to tell you, hosting is a lot harder than it looks. I was just staring at this blank teleprompter thinking to myself, what do I say next? How does he make it look so easy, (laughs) so seamless, so natural? So I'm, I'm I'm glad you're back. So I want to talk
1: to you, John, about last week's drama in Washington with Kevin McCarthy and how the media covered it and what it was like to watch it uh, I think there's a lot of interesting threads to pull obviously we kick Washington media around a lot on this podcast and, and um, maybe sometimes at puck but you know I thought in some ways they did a really good job in some ways they did a predictable job and in other ways they did a bad job uh, in covering McCarthy's slog look by mm. we're taping this uh, while the votes are still happening uh, by the time you listen to this McCarthy may actually be speaker as of my last check about 15 Republicans had voted for him who were holding out so you know momentum is at least on his side we'll see what how many concessions he makes along the way but first of all even without media analysis, The drama has been interesting, not just because it's about who gets to be speaker. It really shows how impotent he will be as speaker. And it just shows what how tight a lot of votes are going to be in the House over the next two years with this slim majority that Republicans have, which might get slimmer if George Santos decides to go back to the NFL or, or, you know, back to starring Mm -hmm. in movies
0: or whatever he lied about. You know, like, I mean, what a shitty job he's about to have. What is Shida job he's about to have? And actually, I don't want to um, overtly criticize such an important institution, but it's term limits, which I know is one of the the, the saboteurs' um, articles of faith here, that they've been you know negotiating about. It. That's not the answer. We actually have to find a way to make these representative jobs more appealing, so that we get better people in them. I've had like a, a number of thoughts about this McCarthy crisis. First and foremost, I think I I watched a, as much CNN in the last week as I did every week of my life from 2016 to 2020, but but like 100 times more than I have in the last year. And a couple of instant observations around the sort of like impotence point that you made. Um, first and foremost, I don't want to kick around Washington media either, but I was uh, thunderstruck by how late, by and large, um, some of the the, the, the biggest and, and um, most significant media companies were to the notion that McCarthy was really in peril, that he was in for a much more significant fight Washington media can tend to be a, a pack mentality. I mean, quite literally, it, you know, this invented the pool where people don't want to have uh, aberrant mm-hmm. thoughts. They they tend to agree with one another. Um, but I was just stunned. I, I think actually the, the other reason is that McCarthy and his aides for for a decade plus have been like prodigious uh, leakers and story spreaders and, and, and media influencers, which is part of the part of the ball game, you know. And I think that he's been so valuable that. Um, uh, many people just sort of saw it his way, which was that these were these were mosquitoes that he was going to flick off his shoulder and eventually give them all the all the kibble they needed to to come to his side of the fence. And 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 I think Tina has reported this that Washington media is uh, obviously deeply and in some ways essentially obsessed with Washington, but uh, has a in many cases, shallow understanding of, um, uh, what goes on in the rest of the country. This is a big Peter Hamby point, And so I think that a lot of the, um, <laughs> the momentum of the, of the Bobert gets, you know, uh, Taliban 20, whatever they're called, was just misunderstood. Like, I, I think it was it was underappreciated just how many people in the House truly hate Kevin McCarthy's guts. And, um, you know, whether it was 20 or down to 7 or whatever it is, that just, you know, people who literally uh, wanted to watch the guy, you know, ice fishing naked in, in Siberia in, in mid-January rather than um, than almost anything else. So there is that, but also, and we've, we've talked about this in the past too, about 10 years ago, I worked at the Times. I worked with Mark Leibovich a fair bit, and he made a funny offhand observation that has just stuck with me forever. Uh, you know, he said, "God, these used to be the jobs that people worked their whole life to assume, and and then at some point they just became these sort of um, stepping stones to get a show on Sirius or or, or go on an odd infinitum book tour, or you know, become a, a Fox contributor and and um, and basically baseball card signer for life." and Sadly, that becomes increasingly true. You know, what's the motivation of Matt Gates and, and Lauren Bobard? I don't know. I don't know how long she's going to be in Congress for, but just stirring the pot and being reckless and and, and not having incentives to, to govern, um, mm-hmm. I think is is really problematic. And I actually think this is like a, this is a you know, and again, I'm not trying to. Um, democracy Now did not send me here to the powers that be to make this point, but but the, these are like these are actually existential issues when you have people who assume these jobs. And don't necessarily value them enough to, to to take them seriously. I'm not a Kevin McCarthy stan. Uh, I, th- I think the guy is is exactly what the media narrative suggests: narcissistic, power hungry, etc. But in many cases, uh, the, the real you know 50,000 foot view challenge here is that um, of this 400 some odd voting body. Not everyone is a, in the chamber for the right reasons.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean. And, and I want to talk about CNN's coverage in a second, but John King said that repeatedly um, on one of the panels he was on. He was just like, and John's been around politics so long at this point, like he can call bullshit. And he's just like, these people are not in it to govern. They're in it for fundraising yeah. and re-election and the conservative media ecosystem. That's a point a lot of people made. I just appreciate that John was pretty blunt about it. But, yeah, I mean, we just launched a newsletter at Puck uh, for DC interest uh, called the best and the brightest. And obviously that was a tongue in cheek title that we uh, borrowed Mm -hmm. from Halberstam along with the powers that be. But, you know, his take was like, quote unquote, the best and the brightest, like come to work for, you know, JFK and they can solve the world's problems. Um, And, you know, C. Wright Mills, who was like a a sociologist who wrote about a lot about politics in the, in the fifties, forties, fifties, sixties, like wrote this book called the power elite. And he also observed Back then that like most people in Congress, most people in the Senate were presidents and CEOs or like high level Mm -hmm. business people or serious like attorneys or people from the academy um, or just like, you know, people from like famous families, you know, whether it's the best and the brightest or the power elite. And yes, most of those people were white men at the time. So, like, it's good Mm -hmm. that we have a much more diverse Congress than we did back then. But. At the, the the undercurrent of all of that was the notion that there was something better to do in government and public service than just work for General Motors, than just work for local Early. white shoe law firm. And you, today, and this is a ice cold take, you know, if you are creative and want to do good, like you can start like a venture fund or go work in tech or like, like you know, like there's just like ways that you can both reward yourself financially and feel like you're like doing something to that enriches the world instead of you know being the like member of congress from florida's like 19th district and you go to dc for two years and you speak at cpac and you know that's the that's the end game you know it's just to like get adulation and raise some money
0: Oh, and, and, and it's actually a very serious, at least to my mind, uh, a very serious economic question. You know, you mentioned starting a venture fund, but but it's all very real. And this is I mean, you know, we're we sometimes we sound like um, young fogies on the show, but we're both guys in our 40s who saw the economy recreated when we were like in college, where all of a sudden these enormous insto wealth creation vehicles were just amassed before our very eyes companies like like Snap, but also the, the venture companies behind them, the evolution of the leveraged buyout business into, into private equity, where all of a sudden you would see people who'd spent their years as CEOs of very important businesses watch Thirty-year-olds create, you know, more wealth in their short lifetime than they could have ever fathomed. And Washington was actually late on the joke, and and it's a quiet money town. It's not a a, a big money town. You know, we we uh, we often laugh that you could, you know, an expensive uh, uh, townhouse in Washington is like, you know, a, a two-bedroom apartment in you know Windsor Terrace. But the uh, what is very real is that to be a certainly a rank and file backbencher member of, of Congress is almost to make the same deal you you make to go work at the New York Times where that's your day job but you're also writing your book on the side and doing your MSNBC gig mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. i think that you know as as a taxpayer here in all you know uh, sincerity these are fixable challenges and and, and these jobs have to be made more desirable so that the people will want them and they do a better job in them and and actually want to hold on to them Um, one of the charms and I'm probably misusing that word of Kevin McCarthy is he actually wants this I mean if truly I, I was saying to Tina and I were chatting this morning I was saying this is like desperately trying to buy a house on the San Andreas fault line and being totally cool that your insurance company won't cover it. What's he trying to do here? He's, he's actively um, trying to fulfill a lifelong dream only to basically be, be fitted for a suicide vest as he goes through the vote counting. Uh, but that's wonderful because i don't think many um of his contemporaries would go through that or or, or younger people look at look at what happened to the other young guns right paul ryan got off the greasy pole as soon as he could to to take advantage of the um fox boards and you know what um, heritage foundation whatever else this is sort of easy money that you get when when you've had a job like this and and eric Cantor, I, i presume is is um in in various k street adjacent roles kev mccarthy wants this and um he's gone to such such extraordinary humiliating lengths to get it that um that it just boggles the mind
1: i was struck last week by the amount of kind of normies in my friend group who are like texting on our group text asking me since i'm like like the political guy in the in the group chat they're watching it they're amazed they're like what's going on why would mccarthy do this to himself and i'm like one of my answers is this is the a DC striver mentality that you might not understand mm-hmm. if you haven't lived there. Or Absolutely. watched Veep. Kevin McCarthy is a combination of Dan and Jonah from Veep. Like you whatever gets you closest to the sun at any given moment, that's where you're moving, no matter how ridiculous, shameless, and embarrassing it makes you. Um he has set a goal for himself that I Want to be Speaker of the House, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to get there. Um, the other angle to this is not a lot of other people actually want the job because it's the what, what of what you just described. <laughs> now, Steve Scalise and Elise Stefanik, I'm sure, would like to be Speaker, um, but they're not going to. Like, it seems like they're afraid to knife McCarthy in the back to get there, at least right now. But beyond that, this is why in a different world on the on the left side of the aisle, like AOC came out and said this a few years ago. Like, would you ever want to be speaker? You know, her answer was, no, it's too hard. (laughs) And like AOC at least like (laughs) has thoughts about policy and some kind of a coherent ideology when she's not voting present on the Iron Dome or voting against climate investment. But. You know, she said the quiet part out loud, which is like it's it's easier to especially when you're like a pseudo celebrity member of Congress, like hang back, sell merch, speak, write a book, do Instagram stories, do funny tweets um, and get attention to the point where you can get reelected in your gerrymandered district and call it a day. And like most people in the Republican caucus, you know, maybe a handful of exceptions don't want to do that like the idea that donald trump would step in and be speaker like give me a fucking break like he doesn't have the ability to move legislation um and a lot of members don't they'd rather be bozos in the you know peanut in the peanut section like throwing darts i'm mixing up so many <laughs> analogies right there mm-hmm. but that's my answer for my friends who are texting me but i do want to come back uh, real quick after a break john and talk to you about why you think a lot of sort of non-political junkies were paying attention to this House caucus drama because I think, there, I think it actually like penetrated the greater population in a way that a lot of congressional stories don't. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Welcome back, everyone. John, it did feel like I was hearing about this house election. Like it's not as big as a story in the in the American mind right now, I think, than the murders in Idaho or the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals and, and yep. the horrible injury we saw on field during that Monday Night Football game last week to DeMar Hamlin. But you know, it did feel like it crossed over a little bit. Usually, process stories under the dome, in the Capitol, are obsessed over by Washington media and really nobody else. You know, and like a few things rise above that sometimes. Obviously, confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court, January 6 hearings in some cases, other sort of Trump investigations and impeachment. The Trump years sort of brought a lot of focus on Capitol in a way that, you know, they didn't have before. January 6 was a big example. But like typically leadership elections, vote counting, whipping votes, that stuff doesn't really get outside of the Politico-CNN right. bubble. This felt like, I, I don't know what the numbers are in terms of viewership, it felt like a lot of people were kind of tuning in, and on top of that, I was spent most of my time watching CNN. I thought CNN did a pretty good job this time. I mean, like, they were, yes, showing the votes over and over again. Um, part of this was the fact that C-SPAN cameras were able to sort of cut away mm-hmm. into Congress and, like, capture scenes of AOC talking to Matt Gates. Like, what? Like, that's something you typically don't see because the speaker uh, usually has control over the C-SPAN cameras and what they can and can't shoot. There's no speaker right now, so the C-SPAN director is just having a blast. And, you know, I felt when they went back to the studio, um, you know, they had a capable group of analysts like Alyssa Farah Griffin, like, obviously used to work for Donald Trump. But before that, she worked for Mark Meadows in the House Freedom Caucus. So she had really good insight there. You know, um, Caitlin Collins, Mm -hmm. I think, really understands Republican politics very well. You have Jake Tapper and John King and Dana Bash, who've, like, covered D.C. forever. And, like, I don't know. I just felt like they had a good stable of analysts who knew what they were talking about. Unlike sometimes when cable networks cover campaign politics, I, like, roll my eyes and have to turn it off. I felt like they did a good job. And um, Oliver Darcy actually mentioned this in his newsletter for CNN. Um, fittingly, uh, about CNN, that like something like over 40 Republicans have appeared on CNN over the last week, like talking about this. And that to me looked like a departure from the Zucker years where CNN was sort of became a liberal network. And this felt like a reversion to form in a good way for CNN, where it's like, okay, Fox, you have Hannity over here advocating for McCarthy and Tucker not. But it was all mostly like you know, internal Republican warfare. And then MSNBC is kind of inept covering this stuff sometimes, not in terms of their reporters. They have really good reporters on the Hill and their political reporters are some of the best, I think, but like they're sort of punditry other than my boy, Tim Miller, you know, it's just sort of like, <laughs> you know, typical resistance liberal, like, look at these crazy people. And it just felt like CNN was offering the most genuine insight into what was going on in real time. And that is my take.
0: Uh, I I agree with your take. I think that this absolutely became part of the zeitgeist for a couple, you know, pretty simple reasons. First and foremost, you're right that sort of procedural congressional stuff, uh, you know, gavel porn is definitely like the the province of, of CNN traditionally, but... Uh, there is something that is just naturally reality television about watching multiple vote counts tear asunder the dreams of this career Washington creature as, as he sits there with his neatly coiffed hair and his <laughs> and his like very very well cut suits. Like to me, that was fantastic reality viewing you know sitting him sit there as people stood made uh, absurd speeches you know t- to watch the, the no number to, to adjourn for the evening the the rush of um, of reporters to meet him as he left the the chamber and, and like you know locking himself in, in the speaker's office which he's already moved into in a pre-Trump era these all qualified for what, what was the closest to sort of tabloid dumb that politics normally mm-hmm. got so I, I get why this got to the mainstream it just ha- how many how many times does this guy want to stand up in the public square and, and just get you know um, his ass handed to him like that was a- appealing to a, a, a an apolitical audience and I watched a lot of CNN too as I mentioned uh, the airwaves are filled with a lot of former Republican members and um, a lot of Republican strategists and it was definitely a non you, you mentioned the um, the Zucker departure in a Zucker era this would have been um, loud and it would have been bombastic and it would have been Chiron-filled. Actually, uh, funny enough, I feel like there was a fair amount of that on, on Morning Joe, but not on CNN. It was, it was really a, a much more civilized, sort of, breaking news conversation, and, you know, they, they they did a good job, but I would stress that I think that, in, in this context, a lot of the guests that Oliver is referring to are moderate Republicans who left Congress yeah, yeah. Um, when these crazy stormed the you know stormed the the gates a, a while back, um, and also like they should be on the air, you know, and and part of why. Um, Indeed, why CNN has gone through its own uh, much deliberated transformation is because of McCarthy himself, who is the perfect example of how you couldn't have a normal conversation with a moderate Republican in the Trump era because they were so narcissistic that they drank the Kool-Aid themselves. I mean, you know, we. we, it's hmm. easy to sympathize with McCarthy because of what he's going through, but one has to remember that this is a person who criticized Donald Trump after January 6th and then went down to Mar-a-Lago to, to lick the guy's boots right thereafter. You know, the, the man believes in nothing. But the other media element that is hard to ignore for me isn't, you know, the the, the success of and of covering this. It's how uh, feckless the right-wing media has become here. Um, Trump seems to have no juice. Um, this would have his role in, in whipping votes for McCarthy would have been an enormous story the role of the the Fox News punditry class would have been an enormous story as as the the, the Mark 11 creatures of the world try to um, you know sweep aside the the saboteurs and and instead i think we are in an environment where the media that covers in, in the most genuine way this part of the party is Scattered at a level of sort of, you know, fringe podcasts and and, and and fringe organizations that is really just beyond the comprehension of the of the Fox News viewer. Um, it, it feels feels really, really distant. And um, mm-hmm. that's been sort of uh, eye opening to me.
1: I, t- I totally agree with that. Um, one other media point I want to make just watching this is typically for me, at least. And I know everyone's feeds are different. Everyone has different social graph, you know, but I do follow a lot of political reporters. Capitol Hill aides, political strategists. And typically, you know, you'd follow a vote count on, at least for me, on Twitter. And I, I know a lot of my reporter colleagues and people in politics would too. And Twitter was and has been like a, a great place to follow incremental developments around things like Build Back Better, like Manchin said this, or like today Cinema walked out of this room and now she's demanding this. And like you can mm-hmm. follow that there, there hasn't been a chronological feed for a long time on Twitter, but up until very recently, you'd at least be able to get a sense of like uh, where things were going on Twitter and just by looking at it to the point where you didn't need to turn on cable news anymore like you used to. I have felt, and I'd be curious if any listeners feel this way too, like the feed on Twitter is such garbage right now. They're letting in a lot of weird, shitty ads. They're, the chronology is even more distorted um, because there's just so much clutter and I'm seeing things I normally wouldn't see that are taking away from my Twitter experience which again was never great often toxic often annoying but at the very least you could like sort through the trash and sort of see what was happening on Capitol Hill but I don't know if this is your experience I'm being shown accounts John from people that I don't follow and I'm being shown them because I've figured out I follow someone who follows them. And so, yes, if Don Jr., I follow Don Jr., and Don Jr. retweets something, I see it. If Don Jr. likes something, the Twitter feed will show me that Don Jr. has liked something. But what I'm seeing now is that if Don Jr. follows some spray-tanned you know, America first idiot in Palm Beach <laughs> that I don't follow, I'm being shown the spray tanned idiots tweets too. And like, I'm also being shown like Good Morning America, like I'm being shown their tweets because a lot of my followers follow Good Morning America. And I've learned that Good Morning America just basically just like on Twitter shows like funny videos they've stolen from TikTok. <laughs> and like all of that stuff <laughs> is getting in the way of me knowing if it's the seventh vote for mccarthy or the 13th vote for mccarthy or if uh some member from indiana has decided to flip i just I, i'm just all of this is to say twitter has felt more useless uh in recent weeks under elon musk for following things like this than it did before and that's actually one reason why i did turn on cable news is because the twitter experience for following this just felt so corroded
0: I, I agree that it, it's been um, uh, an increasingly uh, less useful tool in every way conceivable for for this kind of a news event, and um, I wonder, um, how, you know, how much of this can be corrected. The, the more we and we've talked about this in the past number of times, um, these are momentary Twitter frustrations, but I think that yeah the arc of social media is also one where there's a high point in the parabola and we're just, we're just on the the downside here. And I, I don't, you know, I don't think that, I don't know if cable news isn't giving me the answer to cable news, but yeah. there's no question that uh, maybe this thing is just over. You know, I think you're right.
1: And as media critics here, our job is to criticize and not offer solutions. So I think that's a good way to end. <laughs> yeah. <There you> go. <laughs> John, um, it's good to be back. I will see you in the Slack this week. Thanks for joining me, man.